All right, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you'll find me uh, ready, willing, and waiting uh, to chat with you and hear what you have to say on this uh, on this show and anything else you'd like to talk about. So welcome, everyone, to episode 42 of this show for October 25th, 2021. And I've titled today's show Dune and Gloom. Dune and Gloom. Um, not Doom, but Dune, as in the movie, which will make it into the show today. Uh, and, of course, it's Halloween week. And uh, if you're on the West Coast, uh, it's been a lot of gloomy weather uh, the, <laughs> the last few days. Uh, and so it seemed fitting uh, to put all those things together. So Dune and Gloom is today's title. And the haiku to go with it goes like this. The future is not destined to be anything but what it will be. The future is not destined to be anything but what it will be. Yes. Uh, so I'll explain that in just a minute. Um I'd like to make sure, though, right at the beginning, I'd like to, to say a big thank you to uh, the show sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. Uh, you can find out more about them at airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org. And they are a nonprofit based down in uh, the Portland, Oregon area that uh, provides life and career pathways for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do so by uh, not just teaching the basics and providing programs for kids to learn about all the various uh, components in aviation and aerospace. But they also work with them every step of the way to find uh, careers uh, in those in those fields, so all the way up until they're ready to enter the workforce. They also uh, make sure that they really connect with students, with their families, and with their larger communities. They do amazing work. So uh, thank you to them for sp- continuing to sponsor this show. And again, you can check them out at airside.org, or you can reach out to them directly at info at airwayscience.org. All right, so uh, it is Halloween week, and um, I always really liked Halloween <laughs> growing up. It, it's, a, it's a holiday, which I'll actually talk about next week, but it's a holiday that's gone through a lot of permutations over time, um, and I grew up really enjoying it. I always looked forward to, to picking out my costume, which I usually did months in advance, and then I always hoped for my favorite candies. And so I was just kind of wondering with those people else in the studio – uh, Stacy and Eric in particular. Stacy, do you remember a particularly favorite costume and candy from your Halloween trick-or-treating days? Uh, so my costumes were always terrible. Um, <laughs> they were. Um, I remember that Christine Dugan had the coolest costume ever. Out of chicken wire and foil, she made herself a Hershey's Kiss. Oh, that's pretty good. Right. Mine, I had two older brothers. They tormented me. I always wanted to do something fun. My mother had run out of energy, so my costumes were the worst. And um, my favorite candy at the time was the um, ever-so-slightly-warmed-up Reese's peanut butter cup from my grubby little mitts (laughs) because I was holding onto it so tight. And then um, once I became a parent and my kids had to pay the parent tax, then I started liking different candies. Gotcha. 
Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So. Eric, what about you? Favorite costume and candy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, not from my trick-or-treating days because, uh, again, I had terrible costumes too growing up. <laughs> well, one or two were, were good. I mean, my mom used to always, you know, come up with the costumes, but we were kind of poor. So, you know, <laughs> finally I, I was in, I think, middle school when I said, Mom, this is the last year I'm going as a nudist. <laughs> um, but, but once I was an adult, I started I was going ma- as a nudist. Coming up with my own costumes, I uh, went one year as Clark Kent, turning into Superman. Oh, that's pretty. And good. I got a lot of compliments on that. So, oh, that's I, a good one. That's a favorite. That's a good one. And uh, candy-wise, uh, I do love those Reese's peanut butter cups yeah. myself. But uh, I think like any of the candy bars that are the fun size were favorites and highly sought after, so especially oh, yeah. like a Snickers. Oh, yeah. Although I don't know what's fun about just having a tiny candy bar. Yeah. <laughs> it's For fun me, it's more like... fun when you get the king size. Yeah. It's, more right. fun it's not to have funner or funnest, right. but it's just fun. <laughs> it's it's kind of fun. <laughs> all right. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. What I can share is is my favorite uh, costume of all time is one I've been three times, and that is Magnum P.I., <laughs> the Tom Selleck <laughs> nice. version. <laughs> The, the Tom Selleck version, the three different times, the mustache and everything. Right. Yeah, yeah, did the short shorts and the tucked in uh, Aloha shirt and the boat shoes with no socks and the Detroit Tigers hat. That's good. Oh, I did did many times. I it, let me ask: Do you grow the mustache or do you just do? When a fake I was one? a kid, the first time I had to put one on on a fake one. But right. Then later in life, yeah, when I was dressing up, I okay. I don't want to get you off subject, but I will tell you that the favorite costume that I ever helped with was Grace wanted to go as a Southern Belle. I, of course, was like, let me show you Carol Burnett. And so <laughs> she was sewing at the time. And so she did Scarlett O'Hara and she made curtains and she had a curtain rod. And Perfect. so she went as Carol Burnett doing Scarlett. Doing Southern Belle. That's uh, even yeah. better. So there you go. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, happy Halloween to all of you uh, kids of all sizes and ages out there uh, coming up this week. Uh but thanks for, to the two of you for indulging me. But uh, so this story kind of fits in or what we're going to talk about today kind of fits in a, a little bit with that. Um, but I, it kind of branches off from last week. I had a lot of feedback from last week's uh, episode about uh, William Shatner going into space and in particular some of the things about Star Trek being a series that was about sort of a more positive view of what the future might look like rather than um, a lot of the stories we get about alien invasions and, and that type of thing. That are very doom and gloom. Uh-huh. Hence, see? That's right, right? Yeah. So, um, and you know, and the thing the thing about those types of movies, those invasion movies, is as I and I kind of joked about it, but it was actually a serious point, is what that seems to suggest is that is that if we're always worried about that, it's because we're either seen as some grave threat to alien species, or we are so far behind in quote unquote civilization that we're just conquerable fodder for aliens. <laughs> Neither of which is the best reflection necessarily on how we collectively view ourselves, right? It's kind of the flip side of the same ego coin uh, to view ourselves either as just unimportant and worthy of just being wiped out or, some, or somehow some huge threat that needs to be uh, eliminated. Um, but, you know, these, these types of stories are pretty rampant. We're going to be talking about stories today and, and lead up to my discussion of the new uh, film version of Dune that I saw over the weekend. And I'll just say from the uh, from the outset, I loved it. I thought it was great. But these stories uh, go back and, and have a long, deep history. And uh, and I think say a lot about where we have been and where we are. And that's really what I want to talk about. But I want to tell you a story that, that I heard as a kid that uh, 
that kind of illustrates this, that from a very young age, we can, these kinds of stories can have an impact. And, but this is one that was told to me, and I am in the process of actually turning it into a short story, and several people have asked me to turn it into a screenplay. So consider this, on this date, my copyright declaration <laughs> to anybody out there, and Eric's got it recorded for posterity, so we're good. Um, but this is the effect that it's had on a, on a fun level. I cannot carve pumpkins to this day without getting nauseous. I can't do it. You know why? Because they're Martian brains. Okay, when I was a kid, about six years old, my father, to this day, and he is listening, and so he will deny this, I remember him as him telling me this story. It could very well have been his brother, my Uncle Alan, who would tell a story like this, but I'm pretty sure it was my dad, but he laughs and insists it wasn't him. But I heard this story as a kid that when... Every October, every September, October, pumpkin patches would appear all over, right? And you would go to the pumpkin patch and you, you would pick out these pumpkins. But the story that my dad or somebody uh, in authority told me was actually, no. Years and years and years ago, Martians had come down to Earth before humans were around and had seeded the ground. They grew underground, Martians did. And it took them a year to grow underground. And right about September, October their heads would pop up above the ground. And that meant they were just about full grown. And at the end of October on Halloween, they were going to pop up out of the ground and invade and take over the entire earth unless we pulled their heads off, right? So took them out of the pumpkin patch and dug their brains out. So you can imagine what for a six-year-old kid when people are digging out a, a jack-o'-lantern and then like cooking the brains for, for pumpkin seeds. Yeah, what that was like. <laughs> I cannot do it to this day. Like, I can carve the front of a pumpkin into something, but somebody else has to dig out all the goop on the inside because the idea was completely horrifying. Now, if you're wondering if that story scarred me for life, no. <laughs> okay, but it certainly had an effect because if you think about it, not just think about it, next time you drive by a pumpkin patch between now and next week, you're going to be thinking about just below the surface, these dangling Martian bodies all ready to pop out and take over the entire world, but you got to go dig their brains out. So you're welcome. But I think that would make a fantastic movie, actually, wouldn't it? I mean, just a fantastic movie. So anyway, um, so that's my idea, all of you people out there. So give me money if you're going to steal it. Now, so the reason why I'm telling that is not just because it's funny, but because, of course, a story like that has to do with the fear of, fear of the future, right? If you don't do something right right now or do something important right now, if you're not vigilant, some terrible fate is going to befall you. And that's a very dystopian way of thinking, and, I, and that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about today. Dystopian meaning, of course, any story that's about um, some sort of utopian vision that got corrupted somewhere along the way or was never intended to be uh, positive, taking over the world, the universe, um, destroying individual freedom, oppressing people by the thousands or millions or billions or trillions, um, usually under the uh, under the control of some main some huge figure or some huge party or something like that. And uh, I love dystopian fiction. I mean, I, uh, I actually write in it. The most famous of these types of books and stories, in case you're wondering, are things like uh, George Orwell's 1984, also Animal Farm, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, uh, movies like uh, V for Vendetta, 
More recently, uh, Suzanne Collins' famous series, The Hunger Games, fits into that genre as well, right? Where there's a very clear difference um, in the type of world that we live in, where the majority of people are enslaved, imprisoned, oppressed, whatever the case may be. Uh, even some alternate history fiction, the genre that I write in, uh, can be considered dystopian in nature. Uh, Philip Dick's uh, famous book, The Man in the High Castle, which has been made into a series uh, in recent years. Uh, Philip Dick also wrote Blade Runner, which, of course, is a famous uh, dystopian story uh, in film starring Harrison Ford. Uh, those are really powerful alternate histories. Robert Harris's Fatherland, which I consider to be the best alternate history fiction novel of all time, is the story about a victorious Nazi Germany and what it would look like in the 1960s. And it's not a pretty, it's not a pretty picture of what the world would look like had the Nazis won World War II. Uh, and so those are, those are books and stories you probably have heard of. And the fact that they're immensely popular and have continued to be, every single one of them since they were published, Orwell was published in the 30s and 40s, Philip Dick in the 1960s, uh, and more recently Collins uh, and others, shows you the staying power of these kinds of stories, which indicates something, and I think something really important about where we are collectively, and I want to ask some questions about that for us to consider. The, the thing is, just to give you a little bit of a history lesson here, all of this did not start with Orwell. It actually started with somebody that most of us have never heard of. I hadn't until I read his book. A guy named Yevgeny Zamyatin, who in 1922 published a book called We, a very short novel, uh, which is considered by many to be the first dystopian novel. It took place... Uh, it took place in the far, far future, but it was written in the immediate aftermath of World War I, which had only ended a few years before that. Zamyatin was Russian, and 10 million people, 10 million Russians died in World War I, and another 10 million would die in the Russian Civil War and the Bolshevik Revolution that happened after that, and he witnessed that, and he saw Lenin and Stalin and all of them rise to power. And in 1922, wrote a very, very uh, frightening, scary, dystopian story about what something like this would look like if you played it out to its logical conclusion, what the Bolsheviks were up to. And that was a dystopian society where everyone was monitored. No one had names. They just had numbers. They lived in buildings that were all glass so that they could be watched at all times. They all had individual jobs assigned to them. And the only things they were educated in were the things that they were designed to do for the larger society, all in the name, of course, of a, of a utopian society. But it wasn't that at all. And the, the book itself in Zimyatin's writing was so shocking when you compared it to books that had been published only three decades or four decades before, like H.G. Wells, even though he had you know, War of the Worlds. There's also um, there's, uh, Jules Verne, right? all of his stories from the Earth to the Moon, much more positive in the sense of the direction that humanity was going. But World War I and its aftermath, collectively shattered these notions that have been very powerful in the 19th century, um, collectively by people all over the world, particularly in the, we in the Western world, that humanity was inevitably going to grow and improve. It shattered that idea because, of course, the war had killed millions, right? How could this, the so-called most advanced society nearly tear itself apart and destroy itself in a war if everything was inevitably going to improve? Zemyatin wrote a story that, that really captured that anxiety. 
And he felt like he was warning readers of what could become a global threat from what he was seeing in Russia. George Orwell, influenced by Zimyatin, picked up on this in the 1930s. And he targeted both communism on the left and growing fascism in Italy and Germany on the right by writing Animal Farm in the case of the former and 1984 in the case of the latter. His big warning was that to anybody on the political spectrum, what increasing radicalism on the quote-unquote their side could eventually lead to. And so it was meant to shock and it was meant to warn. And at the time, of course, that he was writing, these were very real things. These were not theoretical threats anywhere in the world. They were very real things happening. And Orwell was calling attention to the need to challenge those, not necessarily just by standing up and fighting against them, but by every individual reading his work to take a good look at what they believed in and why and deciding how to stand up for that. And in the end, to stand up for human liberty first and first, first and foremost. And so these books, these titles get thrown around a lot these days, right? <laughs> by people all over the place trying to explain why their side is correct and why the other side is a threat, you know, this existential threat to human society. Um, they got nothing on the, on the world in which Orwell was writing, by the way. Okay. So what I would say here, and this is going to take me to the point where I'm talking about Dune, is we haven't ever really recovered from that era, at least in terms of our views of what the future might be like and what it means for us today. Uh, ever since then, in this type of writing, it is a writing type of writing based on fear. It's based on fear of what the future could be. And of course, that can mean fear of other people who disagree with you. It can be fear of what it means if you're lackadaisical in your life, if you're not politically active, uh, if you make the wrong choices. It is something meant to frighten and to shock. And this brings me to Dune, <laughs> the, the latest attempt to bring Frank Herbert's legendary 1965 novel of the same, of the same name uh, to life, if you will, in visual media. Uh, there have been other attempts. Uh, most famously, David Lynch uh, made a version of it, I think, in 1985, which uh, to me is barely digestible. Um, so I, I found it very difficult to follow, and I didn't think it, it did uh, the book any justice. This version, though, just released uh, this past weekend and directed by French-Canadian director uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, is very faithful to the book and is a visual <laughs> um, extravaganza. I mean, it is, it is a very, very powerfully filmed story, and it takes place uh, in the, somewhere around the year 10,000 <laughs> in what might be our own universe, what might not be. It's hard to tell. Uh, but it's, it's something that is invested with visuals that are stunning. Uh, Villeneuve just shot it beautifully. It has fantastic world building, explaining what this universe looks like and who are the competing parts and also has great emotional heft amidst great acting. Uh, it's really immersive in a lot of ways. And it's also dystopian at its core. Right? It is not a pleasant society that is projected forward in the year 10,000. Um, a little bit quickly, though, about uh, Villeneuve. Interestingly, he also directed the equally dystopian sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, which came out a few years ago. And he also directed a, uh, an Aliens Come to Earth movie in 2016 that was not about them invading called Arrival. Uh, both of them very well done and beautifully shot. 
um, but all have sort of the same common theme of a lot of fear of the way things are or where things could go. And so with Dune, the way this goes is that ten, in the year 10,000, there's an Imperium that runs the galaxy. There's an, there's an emperor. And you get some hints at how savage this emperor is um, in some very chilling visual shots here and there. But underneath this emperor, in a very Roman style, but also from other traditions, there are individual family houses that all have rivalries. They have, they have their own armies. They have their own planets. And they all have rivalries with one another. And without telling too much about the story, the key conflict point revolves around a vital mineral slash drug known as spice, which is not only a very potent hallucinogenic, but is also the key uh, to interstellar, interstellar travel, as it turns out. So it is absolutely vital. It is the centerpiece of keeping this whole imperium, this whole civilization uh, together. And many have speculated that what Herbert was writing about was uh, perhaps an, an allegory or an analogy to oil in the 1960s in the U.S. But, or in the, in the world. But what we see here, of course, is a very divided society, stratified. These houses don't trust each other. They work to destroy one another. And in the midst of it, there is a chosen one story, if you will. Uh, someone who is meant to emerge, who will shatter this whole, this whole system, will champion the oppressed, and that type of thing. Who is reluctant at first, but in the great you know, hero tradition, uh, discovers unknown powers or some sort of destiny or some sort of motivation. And uh, the story becomes then about how does the sp spice trade get destroyed or destroy the Imperium from within. So you cannot see Dune without feeling a lot, but at the core of it is anxiety. <laughs> and I think it's the appeal of those types of movies, like the ones I just listed that Villeneuve has done, but also the books and all the movie versions of them that have been done, is that we connect with that anxiety. We connect with the anxiety about the present and what it might mean for the future. But the big question I have is not why that exists. I think that can be explained. The history, what's going on in the 20th century, what's going on now can explain where this comes from. Um, so my question is not why, but, but what does it say that we continue to love these stories so much that they are this ever-present, this powerful, this talked about? Is there... <laughs> perhaps a danger in not recognizing that we can in some cases create what we most fear. To what degree do we make the future happen exactly the way we fear it will be? Right? If you focus on something long enough that you're afraid of, can you make it happen for yourself? It's an open question. But if our focus determines our reality, if we are focused on not trusting anybody, we're not going to trust anybody and we're not going to want to uh, be trusted, really, by uh, other people we don't trust. And so it's in this context that I think we can sometimes explain things like the lure of nostalgia. Well, things were easier before this time, when I wasn't as anxious. Back in the good old days, when things were clearer, when you knew who your enemy was, when roles were clearer or responsibilities were clearer, whatever the, the case may be. We see that talked about in a lot of political circles today. Or you can go the opposite way and project forward into a rosy future, right? If we just did this, this, and this, if these people weren't so rich and we took money from them and gave it to everybody else, things would be so much better, right? As if the idea of taking things by force and giving them to other people has ever really worked. 
as Orwell himself saw and lived through, there are dangers in both that have to be avoided. So what is this about? Well, and I want to suggest for some for us to all think about going forward is we fear not having control over the future because we don't really feel like we're in control in the present. And that's scary. But here's the thing. We aren't. Not really. We have control over ourselves and not over really anybody else, even the people we're closest to. That means, that though, if we can't control anything, we can only participate in larger things like voting, political activism, right, social uh, organizations, whatever the case may be, rooting for sports teams. We can participate in those things. And certainly those things can be good, but I'd like to ask the question, and, and particularly during Halloween, maybe this is the best time to ask it. If we are motivated even to do good things by fear, can good things really come out of that? History is replete with examples of it not working. <laughs> if you're fearful of something, can something good happen? truly good, or is it always going to be infected by that fear? We can ask the same about our personal lives. <laughs> if we do good things out of fear, what is really the value of them, or how well, how much do they help us? It's an open question. Because, I don't know about you, but for me, fear produces fight, flight, freeze, <laughs> and usually it happens all at the worst times <laughs> for me, Right? And when we feel fear at its worst, and we see some of this today, these complex questions overwhelm us, and so we can end up looking to simple answers to answer those complex questions. And it becomes easier to identify certain people as responsible, to blame a group, to blame a person, to blame an event. This is where, historically, things like fascism communism, and other totalitarianist tendencies all flourished when simple answers were presented for complex problems and then embraced by people that, in retrospect, were terrified of themselves, of the present, of each other, and of what the future meant. I'm just wondering, fear of the future, it seems to me, robs us of seeing the present clearly, in particular the dividing lines between what we can and cannot do, between what is truly best for all of us collectively without violating the individual rights and lives of others. It's messy and complicated and difficult to parse out. But the problem, I think, the risk of dystopian stories is that they can add fuel to that fire of anxiety and fear if we aren't careful. The worst case is they, they become self-fulfilling. Right? Yeah. So are they good warnings? Sure. Do they do any good in what we do in the present? I doubt it, or I'm wondering about that. I'd like to th you to think about that between now and next week. Be asking yourself, what are your own dystopian views about yourself, about the future, <laughs> whatever they might be? And don't be upset if you find that you have a little more fear in your life than you thought. What we'll be talking about going forward on here are some ways to which to identify that a little bit more and maybe meet that fear with something that's a little bit more helpful. So with that teaser in mind, I'm going to leave you for this episode of this show is all about you. Thank you for joining me. I am your host, JDK Winnikin. Check me out at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, on my social media feeds. And until next time, everyone, happy Halloween and chins up, y'all. <laughs>